I ask you to join with me in a word of prayer. Father, the truths that we have just sung and heard uh, read from your word are glorious. And we don't often stop in wonder and amazement at the truth of the gospel and the fact that we have been adopted into your family. And we have been adopted into your family because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. And he came into this world to take our punishment of sin upon himself that we deserved. And he fulfilled all righteousness and imputed that righteousness to us. And we have seen in his life even the miracles that he performed and the authority which he lived with and the righteousness of his life. And we are humbled, O oh God, that you would save us and redeem us as a people and bring us into your family and that you would enable us to gather together Sunday after Sunday and even during the weekdays to see each other and to pray for one another and to be a family united in Christ the Beloved. We thank you for that, Father, and now we understand that you have placed us together for a purpose, and it's not to serve ourselves or to honor ourselves, but it is to serve you and to bring you glory and to worship you. And you have given us direction in your word as to how we are to behave as a family of God and also how we as a family of God, are to be organized and structured. And so that's what we long to look at today, Father, from different parts in your word, just to seek to have an understanding of how you have called us in your word to be organized so that we rightly serve and honor you. So I pray that you would bless us to that end today, Father, and help us to, to understand what you have spoken. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So if you look at the history of uh, the church, which goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and, and their family, uh, you, will, you will know that God has always been present among his people. This is there's no doubt God has always been present among his people from the beginning in the garden, through the time of the patriarchs, through the tabernacle and the succession of all the temples, ultimately leading to the arrival of Emmanuel, which means God with us. And God is still with us here in this church and in all churches and so last week we considered the nature of the church and what God expects of his people who make up the church, those with whom he is dwelling. And we looked at it from the perspective of our privilege as a body of Christ being in Christ, uh, the living stone, and we saw that purpose uh, which God is uh, bringing us together and building us up, the, the purpose of glorifying his name and serving one another and, and ex, uh, proclaiming the gospel. And we saw these, uh, we saw and considered the priorities of the church in terms of what God expects us to do as priorities, as priority of his word, the priority of fellowship, the priority of the Lord's table, the priority of prayer. These are the things that God desires of us as his children and as a church. And when we understand those things um, and we practice the right privilege and the right purpose and the right priority in the church, uh, those, that will mean that we are a church that is a healthy church. Those are, those are the marks of a healthy church, proper uh, identity or privilege, proper purpose, proper priorities. 
And so we are called to grow in all of those areas. It's really a lifelong endeavor for us as the church, and um, God has always been at work among his people building this kingdom of his on earth. And so for something that is living, which the body is, for something that is living, in order to grow and to thrive, right, there needs to be some kind of structure in place so that it can flourish. If you just think about a baby in the womb, it's living, it's alive, and the baby God puts in the womb with the right structure and the right uh, nutrients from the mother, and he forms and he develops it, and the baby grows in that structure in a way to which eventually that, that child can be birthed to live, in, to live in the world. If you look at gardening of any means, right, you got to provide uh, a stake or a platform in order for the plant to grow and to live and to thrive so that it is, it is healthy and well-balanced according to the intake of the sun or the soil or whatever it is. Living things need to be structured, and families need to be structured. You have mothers and fathers and children and grandparents, right? There needs to be an order and a structure to those things so that those living entities can be grown. And so this Sunday, today, we're considering what you would call the polity of the local church. Uh, some might call it church governance. It's really the way that God desires for his churches to be structured. And so what, that is what we're, we're going to talk about uh, this morning. But with that in mind, I think it's important for us to turn to Ephesians 1 and to read that as our opening passage this morning. And, and the reason is because church polity and governance is not exciting to necessarily talk about. In fact, probably your, I'm sure your favorite class in school was probably the U.S. government and constitution and the structure of the United States, right? So I imagine that this is kind of on par with that. It's not necessarily uh, the most... Um, glorious of all topics, however extremely important. And Ephesians 1 is glorious, though, because Ephesians, Ephesians 1 reminds us of something that we looked at last week, and I don't ever tire of reminding us, and it's that ultimately in this church and in all churches that belong to Christ, Christ is the head of of the church. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? Amen. This is Christ's church. You and me are among God's people. And as we talk about the polity of the church, we are talking and addressing the order that God has called for in the invisible church. All those who believe in Christ are part of what you might call the invisible church. There is an invisible church, and it's known only to Christ. It's the whole body of those who, through Christ, have been adopted into the family of God, and and it includes all such persons that God has redeemed. The visible church is what you might call the local manifestation of that invisible church in various areas. And we here at Ranchview Baptist Church are a visible church that Christ is the head of. This is who we are. This is our identity. When people know us, they should know us as those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why you might say that church polity God finds to be important and why he tells us about it. Because if we are to honor Christ and we are to bring him glory and grow in love and purity to be effective witnesses with the right priorities, we need to approach it in the way that God designs. God knows what is best for his church. And a church that doesn't reflect God's design for it is a unhealthy church. And usually unhealthy churches distort the gospel. So God cares. He cares about order. Church order, let me start by saying this, is not left up to the individual churches. You understand that? Church order and the way we structure ourselves is not a personal preference. It's not a cultural issue. It's a biblical one. We're not to impose our culture, our preference, our agenda on God's design because cultures change, right? Cultures change. People change. Agendas change. For people, but what doesn't change? God's word does not change. So, where do we begin with church governance then? This is an important question. There are some that will begin with elders, right? We are an elder-led, elder-ruled church, and we're going to talk about elders in a moment. Some will begin with a uh, presbytery. Uh, Some will begin with a board. This is where the church governance begins. And of course, having a 
a elder board and having elders is not, like I said, is important. But I don't think that's where we should begin. I think where we begin with church governance is actually we begin uh, with the church itself. That is to say that we are a family of God and we are a congregation of believers. We, we are not a corporation, we are not a, other than Christ, we are not a top-down model. We are a congregation of believers and the congregation is meant to function in such a way that it governs in some way itself. We are, we are meant to be part of the governance of the church and part of the ministry of the church. And so we really need to start with, with understanding that component because we know Christ is the head and we know that in a unique way the apostles were given to lay this foundation for this church, New Testament church. But at a certain point, that this is why you see in Acts 2.42 that the church in Acts gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. You can see how Paul makes the case for his own apostleship in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapters 10 through 13. He's focused on defending his ministry at, against false apostles. So we know Christ and we know the importance of the apostles. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 12 and verse 19, he as he's defending his ministry, he says, I've been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, and he's writing to the church, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Chapter 13, verse 9 to 10. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And so there's this apostolic authority early on in the life of the New Testament church. But ultimately, those apostles, after serving the purpose of God to lay the groundwork, they ultimately leave the scene as they prepare to help the church govern itself. Be leery of anyone that calls themselves an apostle today. This was a unique time. There are no apostles, and there are no apostles for vaccines either. I don't know if you saw that in the news, calling people to be apostles for the vaccine. There, is, there are no apostles in the church, and there are no medical apostles either. But for a time, God did give us these apostles. So what we want to know is what is the pattern of local church governance that these apostles under Christ left for us? How did they view it? How is it presented in the scriptures? And I think what you'll find is the first thing that Paul and the apostles always wanted to remind the church is that first and foremost, the local church is a gathering of God's saints. We are God's saints. This is the catch-all category. In other words, everyone in the church is first and foremost a saint of God. Paul says to the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church, listen to how he puts it, to the church of God that is in Corinth, you could just put the words, to the church of God that is in Olivenhain, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together 
with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, we are all together a church, and we've all together been called in every place for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, apostle or not, he is their Lord and ours. It's all-inclusive. And, and I think this is intentional on Paul's part. And I think Paul, even though he has this authority as an apostle, he understands that ultimately he is just, in a very real sense, just like us. He is not worthy of the calling that he has. So the church is the assembly of saints who have been saved by Christ, united to Christ, placed under the authority of Christ, whose citizenship is in heaven with Christ. As Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 9-10, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Paul tells Timothy in his first letter, as he's giving him pastoral instruction for carrying out his role as a pastor in the church, he says this to Timothy in 3.15. He says, and this is important, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God. And then you'll note how he defines the church to Timothy and he calls it a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So he tells Timothy, he doesn't say you, Timothy, as a pastor or all of you elders, Timothy, in these churches, you are pillars and buttresses of the truth. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say... Pastor so-and-so, Pastor Timothy, you are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. But what does he call a pillar and buttress of the truth? He says the church is Timothy. The church, Timothy, that you are to serve and to lead is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And this is why it's so important for a church to have a confession or a statement of faith that articulates the truth which defines the church. Because the church, the congregation, you understand, you, beloved, are the first line of defense against the church being led astray. Timothy needed to be accountable to the truth, right? He needed to be accountable to the truth at the same time the church, you are the primary line of defense for the truth of the gospel. And you have a statement of faith and you have a confession so that if a false teacher or some pastor gets up and begins proclaiming things to you, you might know and hear and say, this is wrong, that pastor, that teacher must go. This is your responsibility because you are the congregation and the church of God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And you actually see this responsibility of the church clearly laid out even as early as Acts 15, 22 to 28. A very specific example of the involvement of the whole church being responsible for its health and well-being. Because in that time, what happened is a very serious doctrinal error, error arose on account of circumcision. Do you remember? Some were saying in the early church that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, undermining the gospel of God's grace. And so the council meets together. You have the apostles and the elders met together, and they considered the words of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and James. And we are told in verse 22 that it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, and then it says this, 
with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, who was called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. The point being that the whole church was actively involved and considered in the decision. They were part of the governance of the local church. It mattered to the church, and they were all involved in the goal of pure worship and sound doctrine. Let us choose men from among the brothers and send them. And this, furthermore, comes out in Revelation 2 to 3. In Revelation 2 to 3, as John is being told to write to the angel of the church of these seven different churches, yes, he addresses each of the elders or pastors of the church. In each of those rebukes or praises that the Lord Jesus is giving to the church, he addresses the elder or the pastor of the church because that's the pastor's role to be a leader within it. But I want you to notice, as we've read those letters recently, that it does not exempt the entire church from accountability, does it? If you read those letters that the Lord Jesus Christ writes to those churches in the book of Revelation, you will notice that he repeatedly calls the erring church to task. The church is to put away sexual immorality from its midst. The church is to flee Jezebel and the false teachings of the pagans. The church is to be responsible for the truth of God's word. And the church does not get to escape accountability from the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not get to escape accountability for the truth of the gospel, beloved. We are not a corporation. We are a people of God, a family of God responsible for what God desires us to hold to. And so you're not only responsible for the doctrine and the truth of the church, but you're also responsible for the ministry of the church. You understand that? The ministry of the church is not a ministry that is done by a pastor or elder or deacons. The ministry of the church is a responsibility that falls on the church so that it grows. Saints are responsible for building one another up in Christ, for encouraging and discipling and disciplining and and testing and exhorting and nurturing and caring for each other. This is all part of the functioning of the church body in its ministry and its governance. Here's how Hebrews 10, 19 to 20, and 24 to 25 puts it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I thought it's important to start here because it demonstrates the unity of the body and the fact that one saint is not above another. There is no hierarchy between saints. This is what Paul rebuked the church in Corinth for in the first chapter. Because they began to idolize and elevate men among themselves. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And Paul says, you are of none of those men. Did I die for you? I did not die for you. I did not give my life for you. You are of Christ and Christ alone. We we live in a culture that is infatuated with, I guess, individuals 
and highlighting the cult of personality, you might call it. The cult of personalities. This is, this is not what it is to be in the church of God. The church of God is not a cult of personality. The church of God does not have a hierarchy between saints. We are all, beloved, one in Christ Jesus. Even elders and deacons and pastors, even the apostles. Alexander Strzok put it well in his book that's going to that's going to serve as somewhat of a continued outline for us. He says, listen, I love how he puts it, and it's all scripture here. There was only one flock and one pastor, one body and one head, one holy priesthood and one great high priest, one brotherhood and one elder brother, one building and one cornerstone, one mediator, one Lord. Jesus Christ is senior pastor, and all others are his under shepherds. Amen? Amen. Now, I think if this were more embraced and understood today, I think we would have far fewer churches with these tyrants running around who, who think that the church is their own little fiefdom to carry out their own plans and purposes, to carry out their personal agendas. Often you see churches that are plagued by elder abuse and dictators and controlling leaders. I think there's a veil that's over the eyes in those churches and the elders and the leaders don't understand rightly who the shepherd of the church is. And this often leads to divisions over roles designed by God in churches. We start to have power struggles and people want to carry out roles in the church that God never directs or ordains for people to carry out. And I think if we understood rightly our position as being under Christ, we would have far fewer of these problems happening. But that's the foundation we begin with. And so the question is, how does God call us to now that the apostles are gone and we are the saints in the church of God? How does he call us now to structure it? And he basically gives the church two offices, and these are specific roles in the church, not elevations, not hierarchy. These are just roles within the body, and they are called the offices of elder and deacon. So these are individuals that are publicly recognized by the church as having the right and responsibility to perform, this is Wayne Grudem, certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Okay, not status, not power, just role and function within the church family. So let's look at the issue of elder in chapter, um, not in chapter, in the scriptures. The issue of elder. So an elder is, they're, they're also called in, in the word of God, pastors, bishops, or overseers. And, and I think they all refer to the same person. Uh, the word for elder is the word, Greek word, presbuteros, and the term simply means, the term itself means old or old man, but when it's used in reference to a title or a role of leadership in the local church, it doesn't convey age specifically, but it conveys maturity, respect, and wisdom that usually come with age. The word for pastor is poimen, and it's related to the verb from which we get the verb shepherding a flock, First uh, Peter 5.2. The word for bishop and overseer is the word episkopos. And so what you'll see is in Acts 20.17, all of these, and verse 
17 and verse 28, all of these words are combined as Paul calls to himself the elders of the church at Ephesus. And then in verse 28, he gives them this charge. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And so there you got elders, you've got uh, reference to pastoring a, uh, a flock, and you've got reference to an overseer. So the idea is that they, it's all about the same individuals, just referred to in different ways. And so the point is that all of them are the same office, and so we're talking about the office of elders. Now, the, what you also see in the New Testament is this office of elders is meant to have a plurality of elders. Um, the organizational and pastoral oversight of the local church is to be with a plurality of elders. And this is clearly demonstrated uh, in Paul's missionary work of church planting. On his first missionary journey, he's passing through the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and we read in Acts 14.23 that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them, elders, plural, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In Acts 20.17, Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. And I gave you many more references if you got the handout in there. So the question is, why a plurality of elders? And I think there's basically, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but here's three of them. I think that elders, you have to remember, are, have weaknesses and strengths as well. And so a plurality allows them to balance each other's weaknesses and strengths. Uh, elders are gifted in different ways. Elders are human, so they can't do everything. Um, they get tired, right? So it distributes and lightens the workload. Elders are also prone to sin. So having a plurality provides accountability and minimizes the abuse of pastoral authority. So those are three reasons. But the point is, is there's a plurality. Now, I know we don't have a plurality anymore. We don't have more than one. Right now, I'm the elder at this church, but my prayer for us is that we would be praying and God would raise up elders in this church to continue to, to help to carry the load, okay? And so we need to know, though, what is the responsibility of elders to the church? So when you look at the scriptures, and I gave you the verses, so I'm not going to go through all of them, but let me just read those. The elder's responsibility is to provide oversight for the church. So that's to say that the elder is to be aware of the day-to-day -day life of the church. What is being taught? Where is the church weak? Where does it need correction? Where does it need guidance? It's, it's a general oversight of the church, of the family of God. It's also to provide leadership and direction to the church. Elders provide direction by leading. That, that's, they go before the saints by way of example. They don't just point the way, they lead the way. Elders are also called to protect the church because wolves will come from within and wolves will come from without. And so elders need to be prepared to step in the front lines for the church. Elders are called to feed the church, to nourish the church with the word of God so that we understand it rightly. Elders are called to care for and tend to the church, to strengthen the sick with sound doctrine, to heal the diseased with divine correction, to bind up the broken with comfort and kindness, to bring back the scattered with visitation, and to seek the lost through evangelism. I think I got that from Nine Marks, which is really well said. 
They're also called to equip the church, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And finally, to encourage the church. This is an elder's responsibility. And it's important to note that the responsibility is also given to the church in how the church responds to the elders. The church's responsibility toward elders is to protect the elders from false accusations, disciplining elders who sin, and restoring fallen elders, and to understand the verification of elders. And that's what we're going to look at now. Your responsibility, beloved, as we think about what an elder does in a church, is you need to understand the verification. How do you know that you have an elder in your church that should serve in that role? And for that, we look to 1 Timothy. Look to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I told Nancy this week, I said, you better hunker down for a long, for a long sermon here, but not sure how long I'm going to go here, but but 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 7. And this is also parallel to Titus 1, 5 to 9. So how do you, how can you recognize or verify an elder? Well, before going through specifically that verses 2 to 7, there's two other important points about the office of elder just preceding these verses. And so right off the bat, the first point comes at the end of chapter 2 in 1 Timothy. And this really goes against the very fabric of our personal culture and climate here. And it is that the role of leadership in the church, and specifically the role of elder in particular, is reserved for men. You can see this in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, he's talking in the context here about the leadership within the church. So it's not that women are not allowed to talk to each other or talk to men. The idea is one of leadership within the church as, as, that has an authority. One of the primary responsibilities of an elder is teaching and exercising oversight. We just saw that, right? Women would clearly not be able to perform that function according to 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. And there's a lot of debate in the church today about women pastors, even in conservative Christians. You may have heard that on the news or Christian media. Uh, I, I can't remember her name right now, but it's not important. But they often argue that we need to change with the times, and, the, and they argue that the statement of Paul here in Timothy is tied to the culture or uh, is tied to the cultural climate of the time. Um, But it's important to note that Paul's argument here, is it cultural? It's not cultural. Paul's argument here, the reason that he gives for his statement of leadership in the church is actually grounded in the very account of creation. That means that it transcends all of the cultures which came after it. No culture can change what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? No culture can change it. And Paul grounds his directions for the church based off of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Secondly, you'll notice before any of the verifications are to be considered for elder you'll see that the man must aspire to the work of an elder. That's verse 1. In other words, the man must be spiritually motivated to do the work. So it's not a popularity contest or a status position. This is not about one's 
success in the secular world and corporations or about a person's ability to influence people with their personal charm or charisma. And it's not about who gives the most money to the church that they should be an elder. It's not about friends appointing friends within the church that are your buddies that are going to have and form some kind of nepotism in the church. To be an elder in the church, Paul says that the man must aspire to do the work that he is called to do. Just because someone went to seminary doesn't make them qualified to be an elder. You understand that? The man must aspire to it. He must want to do it. And so what kind of man now are we looking for? Because there's a lot of people that aspire and want to do it, men. And they're not verified by these things that Paul lays out. And so this is where this list now comes helpful for us as a church. These are the things that you should be looking for to verify the fitness of a man. Okay? Look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. I'm not going to go in detail on these because they're really kind of self-explanatory. Just make some comments as we go through it. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, See the word aspires there. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's to say there's no overt or flagrant sin that can be pointed to either from inside or outside the church. This is that overarching moral character. He, he's to be above reproach, not perfect, he, but he's to not really have flagrant outward sin. Um, if he is married, so it doesn't say he must be married, but if he is married, he is to be the husband of one wife. That means he's a one-woman man. He's devoted to his wife physically and emotionally. His eye is toward her alone. He is, he's pure in that way, sexually pure, uh, one-woman man. He is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And that, of course, makes sense considering their responsibilities, right? This doesn't mean, like I said, he needs to be a seminary professor or seminary trained, but it means that the man must be able to rightly handle the Word of God and to give clear instruction to believers, the man must be able to explain and defend the gospel to believers and unbelievers alike. And so this is the only verification related to an elder's giftedness or ability. It's what distinguishes an elder from a deacon in the church, the other office. An elder's main role and function in the church is to be able to uh, teach and equip the saints, and so he needs to be able to teach. The list goes on. Not a drunkard. It's pretty self-evident, right? I shouldn't come into the church tripping over the sill there on the, in the doorway and, and, you know, slobbering all over myself, right? Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. I don't, I don't argue and yell and beat people into submission. Not quarrelsome not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? Then this is interesting. He must not be a recent convert. So this isn't, we're not talking about someone saved, someone popular, like uh, someone famous who gets saved and then all of a sudden he becomes an elder in the church. Why would that happen? Popularity or whatever. No, not a recent convert because Paul says he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so, beloved, when we pray for God to raise up elders in this church, that's what we need to be doing. These are the men that we are praying for God to raise up or even one day to bring into our midst if they're not already here. So be on the lookout. Look. Pray for that. Look at these verifications. And if such a man should aspire to serve in this capacity, uh, that would be a blessing to this church. The deacon. The deacon. The word deacon comes from the translation of the Greek word diakonos, which means servant, uh, comes from the verb to serve. Now, it's interesting. According to Alexander Strzok, based on the newest lexical research, he says, we should translate the Greek word diakonoi in 1 Timothy 3.8, not as deacons or servants, but as assistants. The translation tells us immediately the role of the diakonoi and fits well with the preceding context regarding the overseers. These officials are designated diakonoi or assistants because of their close and dependent relationship with the episcopoi, the elders. So they're simultaneously in and under authority, under the authority of the elders, but having authority over the congregation to carry out tasks as needed. That's what Alexander Strzok wrote. And he goes on to say that as delegated representatives of the overseers, deacons exercise authority and supervision within the congregation. So some look at Acts 6, 1 to 4, as really the beginning stages of this office in the New Testament. And you will draw out of that when they appoint these men to free up the apostles and the elders to do the work of preaching and teaching. They're appointed to serve the body as a way of assisting the elders. Here's how it's in Acts 6, 1-4. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they were to help the poor among them. They were to relieve the elders of administrative responsibilities, which included things like the facilities or finances or helping the poor or, or caring for the sick, uh, collecting and counting offerings and keeping records and so on, all the logistics of a church. But again, based on the context of Paul's letter to Timothy, and that connection of the deacon with the office of elders, it seems that Paul has in mind here a leadership connection between elders and deacons. Deacons serve under the leadership of elders to help them exercise oversight in practical and spiritual matters. This is why Paul provides similar verifications for the office of deacon. So, with the exception of aspiration and the ability to teach and not the requirement of a new convert, although he still must be tested, uh, the verifications are the same. So here's how Paul puts it for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise, okay, this is with, along with the elders, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That means observe them and watch them. Do they fit this category? Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith in Jesus Christ. Again, uh, the point here is to make sure that we as a church have these guidelines for appointing deacons to the task of helping the elders. The, I wouldn't normally end here, but another issue arises, okay? And it's an important one because clearly deacons are not called to the same leadership role within the church as elders, right? But if the office does function with a certain level of authority within the church, and, and I believe it does, then the issue becomes, should the office of deacon be open to women? And as you can imagine, this is a major point of contention in the church. It's not as serious, and the reason it's not as serious as the issue with elders, because the issue regarding women deacons is much less clear in the scripture than the role of elders. There are differences on this issue with many godly conservative churches who otherwise agree on everything else but have a difference um, on this particular issue. In our church constitution, if you've read it, it allows for women deacons. Okay? In our church constitution, as it stands right now at Ranch View Baptist Church, women deacons are permitted, but not pastors or elders. And a lot of conservative churches have that and practice that way. The arguments in support of one or the other are many, and it's not something that I would ever divide over. In fact, it would be much easier for me just to not talk about this because our culture is so messed up. Um, but as I consider the issue, I have to say that my own personal conviction is that the office of deacons, while different role than the elders, is still a leadership role, and it is to be reserved for men in the church. That's, that's where I've landed. I, it's even different than our Constitution, and so the arguments for both sides I can see. I really, I really can't see them. People will look at Phoebe in Romans 16.1 as proof that the church had women in the office of deacon, and they will say that Phoebe held that office. I would just say the, that that word can very much be used and is often used in a generic sense without any reference to any office whatsoever. Uh, the fact that she is called a servant in that passage, it, it, it's probably because she brought the letter to the church, and so she was serving the church, and so Paul is just saying that Phoebe is a servant of the church at Sancria, not necessarily an office. Um, it's a general term. On top of that, it's also possible that that word has been argued could be translated in light of that, as courier or an envoy of the church in Sancria. So, I don't think Phoebe is compelling. Nothing in the context of Romans where Phoebe is mentioned refers to church offices. Then there's a technical grammatical points that are debated on both sides. So some will say the identity of the word for wives in verse 11, for instance, back in 1 Timothy, uh, they'll say that it is the, the word for women, and it is. It can be translated wives or women. And so is it their wives that Paul is talking about, or is Paul simply identifying women deacons? And it's argued Paul's transition in this verse, the word likewise tells us, because it's in the middle of the discussion about deacons, that Paul is saying in the middle of his statement, likewise, women deacons like men are to have these traits laid out. And to which I'd say there's no need for special qualifications for women deacons 
if the list is intended for deacons in general. Do you see what I'm saying? If this is a list for deacons in general, why would you all of a sudden insert a specific comment about women deacons? So I, I think that it's better just to see the list as a list in its entirety for deacons and wives seems to fit the context better. Um, and it would make sense because the wife of a deacon may be privy to information or circumstances uh, that she would need to act in this way. Um, there's other grammatical points and I could go on, but here is the deciding factor for me. And really at the end of the day, I think the issue comes down to this. Who are deacons and what role do they serve? Because if you can answer that question and the role of deacon is a role that carries with it some level of authority, then I think the question is answered for us in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Does that make sense? If the office does function in a, at a certain level of authority within the church, then 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 gives us the answer. And on top of that, I would say, what kind of office would it be if it had no authority? Does that make sense? What, why even call it an office if all we're really saying is they are servants of the church? Because every one of you, beloved, are servants in the church. We're all servants in the church. We all serve in certain capacities, hopefully. So what, it doesn't make any sense to have an office of deacon that has no authority whatsoever. And so 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 says that a woman is not to exercise authority in the church. So that's where I land on it. I am not about to die on that mountain. I, not, not because I'm afraid to die on the mountain, but it, it's actually, it is a debatable point because it's not clear. And so different churches disagree. But that's how I land, and our church lands on women deacons. All right. In any case, the scriptures are clear. I think the polity of the local church consists of saints, a plurality of elders, and deacons. And beloved, if we are to be a healthy church, we need to be healthy in all three of these areas under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Lord Jesus Christ invites us as his family to come to his table. And so we will come to the table of the Lord this morning in order to dine with our Lord and Savior. And so I am going to, Rory, if you would come up. I remind you that the Lord's table is for those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and are part of that family. It is not for those who have not repented of their sin and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for believers. So if you're visiting with us and you have not given your life to Christ and you are not saved, and you are not part of a local church, and you are not a member of a local church, and you have not been baptized, then I would ask you not to refrain from taking. This is a family affair. It's for the family of God. So let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the bread and the wine, and then we can come up and receive it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I, I know this has been a, a rather long lesson, Father, but an important one. And we thank you that you have brought us into your family and that we are your people, a holy priesthood, a household of God, uh, created and put together for your purposes and for the glory of your name. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, he is the one good shepherd, and we are all under shepherds, O oh God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our, our brother, our savior, our king, our redeemer, 
for laying down your life for our sin. We thank you that you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead you humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross for our sin. We know that your body was broken and bruised and crucified and hung on a cross and whipped and a crown of thorns placed on your head when we deserved all of that. We deserved the shame and the mocking and the beating. We deserved ultimately the wrath of God that, Lord Jesus, you ultimately would endure on our behalf. And we thank you for doing that for us. We thank you for shedding your blood that we might have our sins atoned for. For as your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And yet you did that out of love for us, Lord. You laid down your life and you shed your own blood that we might have our sin atoned for and forgiven. Lord Jesus, help us not to forget that as we come to your table this morning. Not to forget the price that you paid and the love that you showed. And so we come with thankful hearts and humble hearts, knowing that we don't deserve to be here and we haven't earned the right to sit at your table. But because of who you are and what you've done, we can come freely. Bless the bread now as we eat, Lord, in your name. And as we drink of the fruit of the vine in your name, May you bless it to our bodies and may you be with us in this moment. Let the presence of your spirit dwell among us and encourage our hearts and that we might know that we are truly eating in your presence. That you are not some far away and distant savior or brother, but you are in a very real sense among us. Thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would bless it. In the name of Christ, our Savior, amen.